So, you ever wanted to beat the fuck out of somebody that you really, really hate? I would say that the best way to get at that would probably be to jump him after, like, some type of strenuous gym session. Probably, like, a leg day or something. You know, their blood is pumping. It's super easy to cut them. You know, aim for the top of the eyebrow. As the blood's flowing down, just beat the fuck out of them because they can't see. And problem solved. So I opened TikTok about five minutes ago and I saw that there's another school shooting that happened in Texas earlier. I believe about 14 kids were killed. Uh, one teacher was killed in an elementary school. And I don't really got to even look into this to know that it was probably a, someone 18 or younger that just pulled up with a gun and just started, you know, going crazy. And it's kind of sad because we got all this bullshit legislation to protect the unborn, especially in Texas. Like, they got all these abortion laws where you can't have an abortion now, even if you were raped or whatever. And we do so much to try to, you know, have legislation on abortion, but we do nothing to protect the kids. It's it's almost like beating a dead horse at this point. Like how many times do school shooters need to enter schools and, you know, just go crazy and kill 10 plus people? Not even 10 plus people, even one plus person is fucking crazy. Dude, is there no plan in effect that could, you know, stop this? Is there no security or protocols when it comes to entrances or metal detectors that can, you know help at least trace this type of stuff because it's it makes no sense how these people are getting into campuses and schools quite easily with all these weaponry all this ammo and you know nobody does anything to even stop them or question them it feels like in an age of technology that this is happening a lot more frequently but i remember when i was younger i never heard of all this school shooting and bomb threats going on in schools it feels like these people that are committing these acts of terrorism are just being motivated by some sort of i don't even know video games at this point maybe the music that they hear or even seeing or having access to seeing all these other school shooters around them and i feel like a lot of it has to do with like self-diagnosed mental illnesses at this point i feel like everybody thinks that they have some sort of mental illness when they don't and then they just sort of trick their mind and convince themselves that they have something wrong with themselves and like they can't live this life and they hear these noises that you know force them to do certain stuff and like dude it, it, you're just a pussy at that point like if, if you're really if you're really a man like fight somebody your own size you know one-on-one -on -one, no weapons like with people like this they have to be made an example of like there has to be a point where police officers or you know the court just gives these people the automatic death penalty like why is it that with school shooters we allow them to sit in prisons you know for the rest of their life and like some of them will find ways to live life you know just fine in their means or in their minds and i mean that's not fair they kill all these people like these are mass shootings these people should be slowly tortured and you know demeaned in the worst ways possible and then killed at that point because I know it's like a lot of suffering to go through, but I mean, what I mean, what sympathy do people even have or can argue that to have towards these people at that point? If you're just a low life who decides to go into schools or go into malls or go into these public places and commit acts of terrorism, then you deserve every bad thing that comes to you, including the death penalty.
And on a much lighter note, I guess, I remember when I was in high school, we used to do these fire drills and shelter in places to prepare us for situations like this. And to stray away from this, I remember there was this one time in high school where there was a bomb threat sort of situation where there was a anonymous bag in the middle of the gym that seemed to have something heavy in it. And I remember we all had to evacuate to this church and mind you, we leave school at around 3 p.m. And we were in that church all day. I would say from like 9 a.m. to like 4.30 p.m. at least. And then we finally, I guess, got the SWAT team and the FBI to, you know, check everything out. And like make sure that there was no bomb in the bag or like to deactivate a bomb if there was a bomb in that bag. And it turns out that in the bag were a whole bunch of ankle weights and wrist weights for this track athlete. And it just so happens to be one of my friends, one of my close friends, that <laughs> he was always a clumsy person who just left shit all over the school and like forgot where he left the shit. You know, one of those people. Everybody has that type of person around their school. And he just honestly forgot that he had left his gym bag in the middle of the gym. And then like everybody was asking, oh, whose bag is that? Who's that? Whose bag is that? And then obviously a frantic, uh, I guess, gym instructor was like, oh, I never seen that. He, they called it in and then they made this big fiasco more than it had to be. And then we had to be in this church for such a fucking long time. But I mean, at least it wasn't a bomb, I guess. And to go with that, I wanted to mention that I know that nowadays, especially throughout the past couple of months, my younger sister is in middle school and she has been having to evacuate the school and do shelters in places all the time because on the daily basis, I shit you not, on the daily basis, there are people calling in for bomb threats and school shootings that are supposed to be going on. And it's mind-blowing how the FBI has not been able to crack down on this yet because literally it's gotten to the point where, I'm not even kidding, every single day... There will be a voicemail in my parents' phone that says that, oh, there was another false alarm for a school shooting, that the FBI is under investigation, that they're doing their best to get to the bottom of this. But the thing is that they're calling with, I don't even know how they do it. They call with these unknown numbers that track, backtrack to different addresses around the United States. So they could literally pinpoint any address and make it seem as though they're calling from that particular place. And then when the cops pull up, it's just a random family that has nothing to do with it. And, you know, they can't get to the bottom of this. But it's sort of sad because it's going to be like a... I, I kind of fear that it's going to be like a boy who cries wolf situation where, you know, on the hundredth time something actually fucking serious happens. And then the cops are like, nah, this is another fake one. Let's not take it seriously. But I, I from what I understand, they're doing their best to make sure and, you know, take every single phone call as serious as possible as if it were real every single time and i don't know what's going to come about that but i know that they're calling from these google numbers and i'm not sure the technology behind that but hopefully they're able to get some type of you know subpoena with google and they're able to backtrack correctly through ips and whatnot i don't know how that fucking shit works but shit like this you know hits close to home like literally and this shit is happening all over the united states and I think a large part of this has to do with technology and, you know, kids getting a lot smarter with technology and having easier access to this shit because I do not remember this shit happening when I was younger. All right, so moving on, I wanted to read a story from Reddit and it goes like this. So 
My boyfriend is suspected of having sex with our 14-year-old neighbor. My boyfriend, 26-year-old male, and I, 20-year-old female, have been dating for a little over four years. About a year and a half ago, we moved into an apartment together. We live next door to a father, mid-40s right now, and his daughter, 14-year-old female, who my boyfriend has been tutoring two or three times a week for the last eight-ish months. She was struggling with school, and her father works long hours, so my boyfriend volunteered to help her with her studies. I didn't see anything odd about that at the time because my boyfriend is planning on becoming a teacher. I don't know how, but a few days ago, it was discovered that the daughter has been sexually abused, and my boyfriend has been interviewed by the police a couple of times in regards to this. He assured me that they have to interview any male in contact with her and that it doesn't mean anything, but I'm extremely worried. I have no idea what to do in the situation and what to believe and desperately need some advice. What should I do? How do I handle this? Any advice is appreciated. Well, my first thoughts are definitely that he's guilty. Nah, well, maybe actually. It it seems kind of sketchy, you know, um, especially given the fact that you and your boyfriend share a pretty wide age gap, considering that you've been together for about four years. What does that make you? That made him about 22 years old when you were 16, which still seems pretty inappropriate in my opinion. Yeah, and on a side note, in my opinion, I feel like when you're that young, the age gap matters a lot fucking more. Like, if you're 18, maybe dating, like, a 17-year-old, it's, like, whatever. But, like, even when you're, like, 19 dating a 17-year-old, now that's fucking weird, in my opinion. And, like, anything shit. Like, even, like, a 21-year-old with an 18-year-old, that seems kind of weird to me fucking, too. Especially in your case, a 26-year-old with a 20-year-old, it's, like... Dude, get your life together. Find somebody, you know, up or down, maybe one, two years max, not fucking six years apart. Well, anyways, um, so I did the math and he would be about, what did I say, 22 when you were 16? That's a red flag right there to start off. The second red flag, in my opinion, would be the fact that your boyfriend's tutoring a 14-year-old who, and actually multiple times a week, what was it, two or three times? In the last eight months he's been tutoring that seems like a lot of time together and uh considering the fact that the girl uh, the girl's father is uh you know works long hours and um your boyfriend has been in the house with her alone for a long time makes me think that you know he might be guilty in this case i definitely wouldn't kick yourself for this you know it seems like a very um strange situation to be in i would say the least um to say the least, uh, because all roads lead to your boyfriend being, um, you know, a sexual predator. And as as hard as it may be for you to, I would, you know, consider this uh, relationship over and, you know, I would move on from this, stay away from shit like this, because it, it seems like too much of a coincidence for your boyfriend to, you know, be a suspect in this case would actually make sense it all adds up you know, and uh, i guess the police could build a pretty good case around it and in your case i would say i would if i were you actually i would try to contact the girl you know as hurt as she may be maybe she needs that push from a female figure to you know open up because sometimes you know girls i guess wouldn't want to open up with their dads they'd be more comfortable with a female and sometimes people in general are more comfortable with strangers and if you just approach her as uh a complete stranger in this case and be like hey i'm your neighbor and uh i know that you're 14 years old i've been through that before i've been through middle school i know how hard it may be and uh if you ever needed some guidance i'm here for you and maybe by doing this that she'll open up and maybe you can get some closure as to 
whether or not your boyfriend was actually guilty in this case because maybe you know best case scenario for you and the girl would be if she opens up on who might have been the one you know committing the act of uh sexual abuse and um yeah that's my advice that's that i guess for the next topic i wanted to talk about knowing your self-worth and what that means to me so sometimes we find ourselves in these situations where we're working hard and for no reason like everybody around us might be making the same amount of money you know barely getting through the day and it's it's all it feels like it's all on you to accomplish these hard tasks when there's other people around you who work as little as possible they they just try to barely get through the work day and like i said they're making just as much money as you they got the same benefits as you and it seems like the work you do is just so underappreciated um I could say that from experience, like when you find yourself working hard, you know, sometimes it's nice to just do less because if you just take a look around you, I I guarantee you that you're probably the hardest worker there. And well, I'm just saying this from my own experience, I guess I would be like the hardest worker there. And, you know, nobody pays attention to this. It's sort of like a it's sort of like you're like the unseen hero in the room. It's like all you could do all these tasks perfectly and they just want more and more and more out of you. So sometimes it's good to know your self-worth and if the people around you can't appreciate your work or you feel like you're in a job where you know you can't advance or you don't even want to advance, you can't see yourself there for the next 10, 20, 30 years, why why make yourself miserable? You know, sometimes it's time to move on. Sometimes it's good to just force yourself to work and grind maybe overtime, you know, save up that money, save up as much as possible just so you can get the fuck out of that job and, you know, use that extra money towards another passion that you're actually going to have the opportunity to expand on and have the opportunity to achieve higher levels than just some dead end job that, you know, that you're just doing just to buy some time for, for, uh, I don't even know what you're trying to buy time for. I know personally, I feel like I'm just... Sometimes just trying to work in these meaningless jobs, just trying to get by with, I guess, a life in general. Um, I'm not really trying to, you know, advance in these companies where I get hired because I just feel like I have a bigger purpose than that. And I've, I've been told by, like, several employees in several places that I've worked, like, why are you even here, dude? Like, this is not for you. You're not cut out for this. You're a lot smarter than this. He's like, leave this for people like me, you know? And then I'm thinking to myself, like, Wow. Like, damn, they kind of left me with, like, I guess sort of no option. Like, I, I feel like sometimes complacency could be, like, the death of you. If you Sometimes we're just too comfortable where, we are, where we're at and we don't want to advance or we don't want to, you know, get to that next level because we're just too scared. I don't even know what it is. It's, it's like you're too scared to fail, but you're not even trying to get there in a way. And I don't even know where that rant came from, to be honest. I just, I guess I was just a little fed up from work because it seems like the more you do, the more they want from you, but they're never willing to give you the opportunities to go up in the company or they're not willing to work with your hours or you present them, oh, it seems like everybody else is calling out sick. Everybody else has no problem getting vacation days. But then when you ask for a certain days off, oh, no, we need you here. We need you here. You got to do this task. You got to do that task. It's like, bruh. I'm getting paid the same amount of money as all these other motherfuckers. I have all this time stacked up, all these sick days, all these personal days, all this vacation time. But you're not allowing me to use it because I'm supposed to be this, like, really good employee that you can count on for everything. It's like, nah, fuck that, dude. Sometimes I'm tired of that shit. I just want to relax, enjoy myself, and, you know, allow my mind to think of what I want to do next in life. 
And uh, on another note, you ever just think that, you know, everybody has their own little thing going on and we'll never know what the fuck that is. Like, just think about what your neighbor is doing right now. Like, they could be cooking, they could be cleaning, they could be fucking, they could be beating the fuck out of each other. You'll just never fucking know, you know? And shit like that, that kind of drives me crazy sometimes because you never know what you can get out of life if you just say hi to somebody, you know? It could change your life for the best, you know, it could change your life for the worst, or, you know, it could just not change at all. And sometimes we have to just take these risks and meet people just to try to advance our own life. I always have these little uh, fantasies, I guess, or like, not even a fantasy, but I always have these little um, ideas in my head where I'm... I find myself wanting to knock on somebody's door or like a neighbor's door and asking them how their day is or like, you know, what's up just to get to know somebody. And maybe that's just myself, my inner self wanting to or like seeking friendship or wanting to make new friends or like you're you're at the gym and then you're like, damn, all these people around us. I see these motherfuckers every single fucking day and it's almost as though it's fucking weirder for me to see all these people every single day and not know what the fuck is going on in their life or at least not know their name than it is to just, you know, go up to them and just say hi and just introduce yourself once or maybe just, you know, you don't know what the fuck could happen after that. Maybe they could introduce you to a whole new world or maybe it just becomes a situation where you're just fist bumping every single day and then, you know, that's that. And uh, I guess on another note, a random thought that just popped in my head is, isn't it kind of crazy how there will always be like a better partner for you technically out there, but but you decide to lock down a relationship earlier and, you know, you never you will never know that if you had waited maybe a month or two, you would have met the person who was actually right for you. But I mean, I guess that's life. And uh, I guess that all falls into the world of like, what if, like, what if I was born in a different time? What if my parents were rich? What if I had gone to a different school? What if I knew where I would succeed at the most in life? And I guess our brains aren't really meant for this type of stress. And with that, you know, maybe depression is like a sort of like a like a defense mechanism. So when our output of energy doesn't yield any actual reward, we work and work and work and stress and stress and stress for no reward. And our brains are telling us to stop because the output is not worth the return. And we have to remember that, you know, we're physically limited and plan for that as a society, I guess. And honestly, I don't even know what the fuck I just said. So moving on. And here's another story off of Reddit, and it goes, I stabbed a man in court, said it was an accident, got out of charges, it was not an accident. When I was freshly 18 years old, I got into a fight at the park near where I live. It was a rather large brawl of about 12 people or so. Midway through the commotion, I pulled a knife out of my ankle sock and stabbed someone for the fuck of it. Once a court and a CCTV footage was unclear and I pleaded self-defense and that I never meant to stab anyone. I know what I did. I did it because I felt like it. Edit. This event happened eight years ago. Just wait on my mind for that time and figured I'd confess it. First thing that comes to mind is, man, fucking shit happens, dude. Sometimes, shit, I've been in that spot where I just wanted to stab someone the fuck up and I feel like it's the, it's the internal dialogue in our minds that just sometimes take over and some people are able to control it better than others and sometimes you do shit off of impulse and i can't even blame you because i've had those feelings 
of oh when some especially when you're driving and just assholes just cut you off or just do the stupidest things while you're driving oh dude i could definitely go over some road rage anytime and shit give me a knife on a bad day and shit i'm definitely stabbing some people up i'm telling you that right now but in your case shit obviously you knew and this is like a typical case like you went to court obviously you don't want to get locked up you're gonna just lie about it and it's because it's good that you're confessing it now but i mean it's not something that should weigh in your consciousness unless the person actually fucking died at that point you know it's kind of sucks that you stabbed them but at the same time you know could have been fucking worse so it's sort of like whatever dude i would say that if it's weighing on your consciousness that much i would probably go see a therapist but man dude i would love to beat the fuck out of some people i'll tell you that much and shit sometimes people deserve it sometimes people don't and in your case i guess you just did it freely just off the muscle of just being around an environment that was violent and then you're just like you know fuck it i'll just pull the knife out and stab someone <laughs> we're just fucking crazy i guess looking in retrospect but um go to a therapist definitely all right and here's another story so it goes my best friend kissed me on the cheek and i'm kind of freaking out I'm 18-year-old male, she's 17-year-old female, and today me and her went to a diner for breakfast since we both had the day off of work and school. After we ate, we were about to leave and she gave me a hug. I hugged back and she kissed me on my cheek. I have feelings for her, but I've tried ignoring them, but now I'm not sure how I can do that. That was the first time I've been kissed and I don't know how to act around her to not seem so weird. Sorry if this post sounds weird, I just don't know how to react to this. Well, if I were you... I would ball my fist up, put it right back, and sock her in the face. Nah, I'm just kidding. Um, not wanting to give much relationship advice, but it must be fucking weird. I guess it all starts like that in a way, I guess, where if you're just meeting a girl and you're just very, very into her, you guys are just best friends. But I mean, it depends how long you've been best friends. If you've been best friends all your life, that's kind of fucking weird to just hold in feelings for that long and then just decide... When you're a little bit older, oh, we should uh, hang out because we share this much mutual interest. It's like, dude, it's like you got to separate friendship from relationships sometimes. But I mean, in your case, hopefully you haven't known each other for that long. I would say that that's fine. But if you know them for a long time, then that's kind of fucking weird, to be honest. So I wanted to end off with a little story. Um, keep this podcast episode nice and short for the second one just to get it out there, you know? This story is from Theresa from Reddit, and she goes, This is not my story. It's my daughter's. Her name was Teresa. She died two weeks ago of suicide by overdose. She called me just prior to the act, informing me of her intentions and the reasons behind them. I, of course, pled with her, begging her through tears not to go through with what she had planned. But she was resolute in her decision, and with growing horror, I realized that this was no bluff, no desperate cry for attention or reassurance. As she hung up the phone, I knew with certainty she was already as good as dead. I knew it from the moment she had said, Daddy Ray is here. I don't know what the fuck that means, but moving on. I immediately phoned the police, knowing that they would be able to reach her well before I could. But I also knew they would be too late. They found her in bed, by all appearances in a deep and peaceful sleep, one hand draped across her stomach, the other outstretched to the side, palm up, fingers curled as if clutching something. Another hand, perhaps, but the other side of the bed, Ray's side, was empty. This is also Ray's story. He died a little more than a year before Teresa did. He was shot twice, once through his right hand, which he had held out defensively. 
the bullet piercing both his cell phone and his palm before lodging in the tile of the wall of the bathroom in which he had made a final desperate attempt to hide. The second bullet found his neck and he bled out quickly, alone on the cold floor. He was one of nine people who died in his office building that day. Eight of those people thought it was just another Monday at work, unaware that they would not be walking out alive at the end of the day. The ninth to die, the shooter had no intention of walking out again. Ray had called Teresa on his lunch break that day. She was at home and the sight of his name lighting up her cell phone and causing it to buzz had made her smile. Married only three months, the pair was still in that young, fleeting, honeymoon stage of marriage and Ray would frequently find any excuse to phone his bride from work if time allowed. Hello, she answered, a smile in her voice. Why did the man always get hit by a bike on his way to work, Ray said. I don't know, Teresa responded. Why did he? Because he was stuck in a vicious cycle, Ray said. Teresa chuckled. The joke wasn't really all that funny, but Ray had always delighted in corny humor and his joy in telling these awful jokes brought Teresa more pleasure than the punchline itself. Case in point, he had used a ridiculous pickup line to win her over in the first place. Feel my shirt, he said to her. A stranger in a sea of people crammed into a mixer at one of her girlfriend's apartments two years ago. Do you know what it's made of? Boyfriend material. Teresa had laughed out loud, one because the pickup line was so genuinely funny, and two because of Ray, tall and attractive in a goofy kind of way, was so ridiculously happy to use it on her. His smile was contagious and immediately endearing, and as bad as the line had been, it had worked. They had been together ever since. How was your day, Teresa said, sitting down at the kitchen table. Living the dream, Ray responded with some sarcasm. Actually, my presentation went well this morning. I'm supposed to present it again to senior staff on Wednesday. Things are looking very promising. That's great news, Theresa said. It really is, Ray said, satisfaction in his voice. You know, if this proposal goes through, we should celebrate. Go away somewhere. There was a pause on Ray's end. That sounds like a wonderful idea, he responded. Only now he sounded slightly distracted. Do you have some place in mind? I don't know, Theresa said, thinking. Cheryl has that cabin that she said we're always welcome to use. We ought to take her up on that sometime. She and Brad will end up selling it before we ever use it. It would be nice to get away. Ray didn't respond. Babe? Teresa said. A moment's hesitation. Did you hear that? Ray asked. Hear what? Teresa said. But before he could respond, she heard it. A loud report, a distant bang coming over the phone. Ray, what was that? I don't know, he said. And from the sound of his voice, he was walking. His voice sounded very shaky. Ray? A moment's hesitation. Did you hear that? Ray asked. Hear what? Theresa said. But before he could respond, she heard it. A loud report. A distant bang. Coming over the phone. Ray, what was that? I don't know, he said. And from the sound of his voice, he was walking. His voice sounded shaky. Ray? There was a second loud report, still distant but closer, and Theresa felt her hands go cold when she thought she heard a woman scream. I'm going to find out what's going on, Ray said. I'll call you back. Ray? Theresa said. But he was gone. She set the cell phone down on the table and stared at its black screen. She got up suddenly from the kitchen table, walked to the sink and filled a glass full of water, which she downed. Staring over at the phone, she willed it to ring again to show Ray's name. It did not. Theresa rushed over and picked it up. She called Ray's cell phone. It went to voicemail. She called his desk phone. It too went to voicemail. She called reception at the office. No answer. She slammed the phone back down on the table, hands trembling. She found it hard to catch her breath, to not imagine the worst, to convince herself that what she had heard did not mean what she had thought it meant. An interminable moment later, her phone rang. She snatched it up. Ray, she said? Baby, he said, whispering his tone urgent. There's a man with a gun. Teresa sank into her chair. Where are you, she asked, whispering too without realizing she was. I'm in a bathroom down the hall from my office. Reese, 
He killed Mark. I saw it happen. His voice was trembling on the verge of tears or panic. Ray hang up and called the police, she said. I did, he insisted. They're on their way. Okay, she said. Just be calm. She said this as much to herself as she did to Ray. Where is he, she asked. I don't know, he said. I saw him at the end of the hallway. I saw him shoot Mark. I came in here because it was the closest door. I don't know if he saw me. Did you lock the door, she asked. The door doesn't lock, he said, a small sob hitching in his voice. I'm in one of the stalls. It's locked. Ressa began to cry silently, the hopelessness of Ray's situation sinking in. Who is he, she asked. I don't know. He's wearing a mask, a ski mask. I think he's... Ray stopped talking suddenly at the sound of a loud bang, disturbingly close. Ray hesitated and took a long, shaking breath. I love you, Reese, he whispered, his voice even quieter now, barely audible. No, she objected, and she slid from the chair to the kitchen floor. The phone pressed tight to her ear. There was another banging sound, but this time it wasn't the report from a gun. It was the sound of a door being kicked open and hitting a wall. Ray took a sudden, gasping breath. Ray? Teresa whispered. Bang, the sound of the door of a bathroom stall being kicked. No, Ray cried out, and the sound of his desperation made Thressa's entire body go numb. Ray, Thressa said louder. Bang, the sound of the stall door crashing open. No, Ray screamed. Ray, Thressa yelled. Bang, the sound of a gun. And then, everything went silent in the house for several seconds as Thressa struggled to take in a breath. Finally, she screamed. The shooter was a man named Vincent Holland. He had worked in the engineering department just one floor down from Ray's office in marketing. A textbook disgruntled employee with manic depressive issues. At least that was the story that the press was reporting. Vincent had managed to kill eight of his co-workers and then had turned the gun on himself at the first sound of approaching sirens. The following 24 hours were a blur for Teresa. Through her haze of shock, she had answered police questions, had identified her husband's body, his face pale but still unmistakably his own, and had made necessary phone calls to friends and family. And in the moments between, Teresa had wept, her body crushed under the weight of a grief that was nearly unbearable, the physical pain of it enough to make her welcome the thought that perhaps it might kill her. What a mercy that would be, she thought. The night of Ray's death, she had slept the deep and artificial sleep of the drug, her body succumbing to whatever cocktail her best friend Cheryl had insisted on giving her. Teresa had not asked, did not even care what the pills were, but had taken them all and quickly slipped into the warm embrace of sleep, where her grief, at least briefly, could not reach her. When she woke the next day, she wondered briefly why her chest hurt so badly. It took but a moment for her to remember, and the tears were immediate. She rolled over and put her palm on Ray's side of the bed, where the mattress was cold and empty. Behind the sound of her crying, she could hear voices down the hallway. Cheryl and Teresa's mother were speaking in somber tones. Teresa looked at the clock. It was shortly after noon. Cheryl's sleeping pills had caused her to sleep for more than 11 hours. Teresa sat up in bed and wiped the tears from her cheeks, consciously pressing the sorrow down deep into her stomach. She picked up her cell phone from the nightstand, more out of a habit than a necessity, and she shuffled towards the bathroom, flipping a switch. The light assaulted her eyes, and for a moment, she absorbed her own pitiful reflection, eyes swollen cheeks blotchy, nose red. She took in a long, shaking breath. Then her phone buzzed in her hand and she jumped. The screen said, Ray. Theresa stared at it, a mixture of disbelief and confusion coursing through her brain. She answered it. Hello. Her voice was barely a croak. Why did the man always get hit by a bike on his way to work, Ray said. Teresa struggled to take a breath, and when she was finally able, it came in a rattling gasp. She took an involuntary step away from the mirror as if retreating from what she was hearing. Her mind raced as she felt a sudden surge of hope wearing against her lingering sorrow, and she wondered if perhaps the events of yesterday had been nothing but an incredible dream. Because he was stuck in a vicious cycle, Ray concluded. Ray, Teresa said. Yeah, baby, he responded. What's wrong? 
The joke wasn't that bad. Ray, where are you? She asked. I'm at work, he said, with a slight chuckle. Just got out of a meeting. My presentation went well. I'm supposed to present it again to senior staff on Wednesday. Things are looking promising. Teresa didn't respond. Reese, are you okay? He asked. Teresa looked at herself in the mirror, at her Halloween mask of grief. The floor felt like it was tilting under her, and her brain, still kicking off the last remnants of Cheryl's pills, was a swamp of conflicting thoughts. Reese, he said again. What day is this? She asked. What? It's Monday, he said. What's going on? What's wrong? It's Tuesday, she said. No, it's... Ray began, but then he stopped. There was silence on both ends of the phone for a moment. Then Ray said, Did you hear that? Hear what? She asked. Then she heard it. A sick feeling of deja vu swept through her. There was a loud report, a distant bang coming over the phone. What was that? Ray said, and from the sound of his voice, he was walking. Ray, wait, Theresa said. There was another loud report, still distant but closer, and Theresa heard a woman scream. I'm going to find out what's going on, Ray said. I'll call you back. Don't, Theresa said, but he was gone. Theresa put her phone down on the bathroom sink and stared down at it, her hair cascading in front of her eyes. She shook her head violently, trying to shake off the confusion that made it difficult for her to focus. She ran her fingers through her hair and then pulled at it in frustration. She picked her phone back up and called Ray's cell. Voicemail. She called his desk phone voicemail she called reception at his office the outgoing message informed her that in light of yesterday's tragic events the office would be closed for the remainder of the week thrust a furrow at her brow and put the phone down on the sink again seconds later it rang again the screen said ray she answered it without saying anything reese ray said his voice whispering panic listen to me there's a man with a gun Theresa began to sob and her hand shook so violently that she could barely hold the phone to her ear i'm in the bathroom down the hall from my office baby he killed mark i saw it happen ray's voice trembled on verge of tears Teresa said nothing i called the police ray continued they're on their way he took a long trembling breath Teresa sat down on the floor and brought her knees up to her chest she began to rock back and forth i don't know where he is now ray said i saw him at the end of the hallway i saw him shoot mark i came in here because it was the closest door i don't know if he saw me but the door doesn't lock i'm in one of the stalls there was a long moment of silence reese talk to me ray demanded desperately ray she said through her sobs she could manage no more words than that I don't know who this guy is, Ray said. He's wearing a mask, a ski mask. I think he's... But Ray stopped talking suddenly. At the sound of a loud bang, disturbingly close, he hesitated and took a long, shaking breath. I love you, Reese, he whispered. Over the phone, Theresa heard the sound of a door being kicked open and hitting a wall. Ray gasped. Theresa relived the sound of the bathroom stall door being kicked open, the sound of Ray's desperate objection, and then the final sound of the gun being fired. And then, in the ensuing silence... Teresa relived the grief of her husband's death for the second time. She told no one about the call. Not Cheryl, not her mother. She couldn't explain it to herself, much less to anyone else. The two had continued to keep her company throughout the day, answering phone calls, dealing with concerned well wishes, attempting to get Teresa to eat, and managing the details of Ray's viewing and funeral, which were scheduled for Saturday evening and Sunday morning, respectively. But mostly, the two of them were there to simply make sure that Teresa was not alone. In her waking moments, they treated her like an antique porcelain doll, delicate and fragile. Teresa slept for most of the day, even without Cheryl's chemical help. She ate hardly at all, a fact that distressed her mother. She had still been in bed at noon on the following day, Wednesday, two days after Ray's death, when her cell phone rang. The screen said, Ray. Her body went numb, and she quietly began to cry. She answered it. Ray? She said quietly. Why did the man always get hit by a bike on his way to work, he said. Theresa ended the call immediately. 
and then shut her phone off completely and tossed it aside. She lay in bed and wept. On the third day, Thursday, Theresa was alone in the house. Cheryl and her mother had other things to attend to and hadn't been outside the house since Monday evening. Theresa had showered, brushed her hair, and even put on a little bit of makeup. Her arms felt weak and heavy as she did so, but she attempted a tired smile and she insisted that she would be fine if her mom and best friend left her alone for a little while. When her cell phone rang shortly after noon, she was sitting at the kitchen table, the bright sunlight through the windows making her headache after so much time spent in the darkness of her bedroom. She answered it, her voice weak, because he was stuck in a vicious cycle. There was silence at the other end, and for a moment, Theresa wondered if Ray was really there. Finally, he laughed and asked, How did you do that? I'm not sure, she said. Are you okay, he asked. You sound strange. Theresa took a deep breath. Do you know who Vincent Holland is, she asked. Yeah, he works down in engineering, I think. I don't know him really well. I do know that every day at lunch he eats an onion like an apple. Never seen anything like it. Ray, he has a gun, Theresa said. What? How do you know that? Don't ask me that right now, she responded. He has a gun and he's going to start shooting people. You have to get out of there. Reese, I don't. But then Ray stopped as they both heard the sound of a gun being fired. What was that? Listen to me, Theresa said. You have to get out of the building. Ray was silent for a moment. Then he said, Okay, okay, I'm going. And then the phone fell silent. Theresa put the phone on the table and stared at it. Dust floated silently through a sunbeam that cascaded through the window and landed with warmth on the back of her hand. She wondered how the sun continued to shine, as if the entire world wasn't enveloped in grief like she was. Her phone rang again. Ray. She answered. Baby? I saw him, Ray whispered. Where are you? She asked. I'm in the bathroom down the hall from my office. Baby, he killed Mark. Theresa ended the call and slammed her phone back down on the table. She put her hands over her eyes and cried. Friday shortly after noon, Theresa sat at the kitchen table with Cheryl and her mother. The three of them were quietly nursing cups of tea. The kitchen counters and nearly every other available surface covered in gift baskets and flowers. Theresa's mother and Cheryl made quite small talk as Theresa sat silently, her eyes intently focused on her cell phone, which sat like a dumb blank slate on the table in front of her. 12.03 came and went without a call. Theresa chuckled mirthlessly to herself. She had intentionally made sure that she was not alone for today's phone call from Ray. If he did call again, this time she wanted witnesses, but part of her knew that he would not call her if she was not alone. Is everything okay, Reese? Cheryl asked. Theresa peeled her eyes away from the silent phone. Yes, she whispered and sipped her tea. I flew in from across the country for Ray's viewing and funeral. Theresa's mother and I were cordial towards each other, but also avoided each other as much as possible for Theresa's sake. I was I was shocked at how she looked, tired and haggard and grief-stricken, of course, but also troubled in a way that did not look like simple mourning. I held her tightly several times over the course of those two days, always at a loss for words, wishing there was anything I could do. I held her tight several times over the course of the two days, always at a loss for words, wishing there was anything in the world I could do to remove the weight of sorrow pressing on her shoulders. Theresa told me later that she had tucked her phone away during the two days of activities. She had thought that maybe going through the ceremony of remembering Ray's life, seeing his serene face as he lay dead in the casket, and then watching with surprising detachment as his body was lowered into the ground, would bring a final end to his daily calls. But on Monday, alone at home for only the second time in the week since Ray had died, her phone rang again. She considered not answering it, but could not resist doing so. A sense of both longing and hopelessness in her chest. Ray, she said. Why did the man always get hit by a bike on his way to work, Ray said. Then Theresa burst into tears. For the next several days, Theresa lived in a fog. She always took Ray's calls. Some days she let the conversation play out like it had on the first day, relishing those first fleeting seconds when Ray was still happy and alive. Other days she interrupted his joke in order to ask him a question like where he had put the key to the safety deposit box, 
or where he had filed insurance papers. Confused but cooperative, Ray always answered her questions. Some days she had used those initial seconds to convey her deep love for him. She had sobbed as he had expressed his love for her in return. But then, all too quickly, the sound of a gun would bring their conversation to an end. And then, one day, weeks on, the phone had rung, and Teresa had said, Hello, baby, and waited for Ray to launch into his bicycle joke. There was a pause, and Ray had said, Reese, did... Did I call you earlier today? A coldness spread through Teresa's chest that she couldn't understand. What? No, you didn't. It's so strange, Ray said. I picked up the phone to call you and got this sudden sense of deja vu, like I already called you today. A tear fell silently down Teresa's cheek. She couldn't find the words. Is everything okay, Ray asked. I miss you, baby, she whispered. Ray chuckled. I miss you too, he responded. More of a question than a statement. I'll see you in a few hours. No, you won't, she said. Reese, what? And then he stopped. Did you hear that? Theresa hung up the phone. Her thoughts stirred with confusion and an odd sense of hope. Every prior conversation had been laden with a heavy sense of the inevitable. No matter what Theresa said to him, Ray would always end up dead on the floor of his office bathroom. But today? Today he had seemed to remember something, and their conversation had taken a different course at Ray's direction. And Theresa began to wonder what would happen if she tried pushing harder, made more of an effort to get Ray to take a different course of action. The next day, when Ray called, Theresa immediately took charge of the conversation. Ray, I need you to listen to me carefully and answer me as fast as you can. How many different ways are there out of your office, out of your department, I mean? What, he said? Answer me, she insisted. There's the main door, straight through goes to the IT department, and to the left takes me down the main hallway. There's a second door that goes through HR, but that just meets up with the main hallway at the outer end. And then there's the door to the balcony. Why are you asking me this? Grab your keys. Don't grab anything else, Theresa insisted. Go through the IT department. Do not go down the hall. Get to your car and come home now. There was a pause, and then Ray said, Okay, okay, I'm coming. And the line went dead. Theresa found herself out of breath while she waited. She paced. Moments later, her phone rang again. Reese, listen to me. There's a man with a gun. Theresa screamed in frustration and threw her phone across the room where it hit the carpet and slid across the floor. The next time he called, Theresa asked, Ray, the balcony outside your department, does it have steps that go down to the courtyard? Yes, he said. Why do you ask? And you can get to the parking lot from there? Yes, what's going on? Go, Theresa insisted. Don't ask me anything. Just go out the balcony doors and to your car. Do it now. Come home. Is everything okay, he asked. Go, she yelled and hung up the phone. A minute passed, then two. Teresa barely breathed as she stared at her phone. Five minutes passed without a call from Ray. She was finally able to take a breath. Teresa was on her bed. Her back ached as she sat arched over the phone. For the first time since the day he died, there was no second phone call, and Teresa had no idea what to expect next. She was lost in a nearly thoughtful daze when she heard the front door open. She jumped and nearly cried out. The door closed and she heard footsteps. She jumped from the bed, racing from the bedroom and down the hallway to the foyer. And impossibly, there he was, his tall, gangly, goofy-looking yet handsome self. Although his skin was deathly pale, to the point of almost being blue, he smiled at her. Although his brow was furrowed and concerned, his mouth formed the beginnings of a question, but she ran to him and leapt into his arms. He was cold, deathly cold, and Theresa gasped. Is everything okay, he asked, and his voice sounded like it did on mornings when he had first woken up, rattling and unused. Everything is okay now, Theresa said, weeping into his shoulder, holding him tighter than she had ever before. Before. And in return, Ray held her tightly as well, but his hands were like ice on her back, his body stiff against hers, and although her ear was pressed firmly against his chest, she could not feel his heart beating, a fact that she dismissed just as quickly as she realized that Theresa decided to tell him everything, sitting at the kitchen table, 
She held his icy hand in both of hers, and she recounted everything from the initial shooting at Ray's office, his death, his funeral, and his daily phone calls. He stared at her blankly, his face registering no alarm, confusion, or even recollecting as she spoke. She sat back in her chair and considered him for a moment. He wasn't hungry. He wasn't thirsty. He was content to sit quietly until Teresa gave him directions to move. Her heart ached with a dueling emotion of relief and terrible confusion, and she watched him closely, unable to hide obvious the bewilderment on her face. And yet Ray never asked her what was wrong. That evening, Teresa led Ray into their bedroom, where he stood dully by the foot of the bed and looked at her as if he had never been in the bedroom before. She undressed him, and as she did so, she realized that he was wearing his work clothes, not the suit he had been buried in, the suit he had worn on their wedding day. She pulled back the covers and told him to lie down. He did so with silent obedience. She slid in bed beside him and kissed him. His kiss was both familiar and foreign to her. His lips were soft and passive, where they had been firm and insistent before, and there was no warmth there. But the texture and the taste of him was the same, and Thressa nearly wept as they embraced again. They made love, Thressa initiating and leading where Ray had taken charge before, and while her heart overflowed with joy of being held by her husband once more, her body shivered at the iciness of his touch. When Thressa awoke the next morning, sunlight touching her eyelids, she reached out without opening her eyes, but her fingers encountered nothing. Ray's side of the bed was empty, covers pulled up as if he had never been there. She sat up abruptly. Ray, she called out. There was no answer. She searched the house, calling out for him several times, but he was gone. She returned to the bedroom, feeling both confused and sorrowful. Where had he gone? And would he come back? And then shortly after noon, her phone rang. The screen said Ray. She answered it. Ray? Reese, he said, his voice sounding even more raspy and unused than before. Don't worry. I know there's a shooter. I'm coming home. The line went dead and Thressa sat her phone down. Her chest nodded in a cacophony of emotions, sorrow, hope frustration, and even fear. Then she realized she could hardly feel anything anymore. But come home he did, and this became their new pattern, the new vicious cycle they were stuck in. Every day he would come home, every day looking even more pale and feeling even more cold to the touch, his personality receding even further into the empty shell that he was becoming, a vacancy behind the eyes that had once been so passionate and full of life. Thressa had to tell him to sit, to eat, to bathe himself. He was like an elderly man who was losing use of his faculties, and Thressa evolved into his loving but confused and somewhat terrified caretaker and every morning Ray's side of the bed would be empty again and he would call Teresa from work shortly after noon to tell her he was coming home. Teresa noticed that each time his voice sounded more like it was being dragged over stones like his vocal cords are decaying she thought. It was not long before his countenance began to catch up with his voice. He began to look more physically withered, his tall frame beginning to bend, his eyes large in their sockets as his face became even more wan and his cheeks more sunken. Teresa allowed the cycle to continue for months, her love for her husband locking her in a living hell, but she was rapidly reaching the point of collapse herself. I'm coming home, he said over the phone, his voice like dusty rocks being rubbed together, barely recognizable to her. Wait, she said. Ray, don't come home. Stay there. It's okay. Stay there. No, he responded, slowly and without emotion. No, if I stay here, I'll die. I'm coming home. Teresa had hung up the phone wept and waited once more for her husband to return. She wept because he was alive and yet dying more and more every single day before her very own eyes. She wept because she felt bound to him in whatever repeating loop that his death and their love had created. And she wept because they were together again and yet she felt entirely alone. Theresa had hung up the phone, wept, and waited once more for her husband to return. Finally, 
On the day Theresa took her own life, she made a decision, a decision that came to her easily and without fear. In fact, the idea gave her the first comfort she had felt in the year since Ray had died. Perhaps the key to escaping this living hell was to die herself, more precisely, to die besides Ray as they slept together in bed, and in the morning, when he was gone, perhaps she could be too gone but together she called me that afternoon to tell me her story to tell me her plan and to tell me goodbye i listened to her terrified and disbelief and she recounted the details of her miserable life and the months since ray had died her story was one i could not accept this fact and yet simultaneously i knew from the sound of her tired yet determined voice that my daughter was telling me the absolute truth is ray there now i asked her yes she said tiredly do you want to talk to him i didn't answer but then i heard Theresa say distantly it's dad. Talk to him. There was a shuffling sound, followed by raspy breathing. Ray, I said, and I was surprised to find my own voice was trembling. He didn't respond, but I could hear as he attempted to. All I heard was the sound of his laborious breath and the vaguely recognizable tones of his voice as he attempted to speak, but his words were garbled, his voice wasted. Theresa took the phone back. I have to go now, daddy. Baby, don't do this, I said, crying, but trying to hold myself together. I love you. Your mother loves you. Let us help you. There has to be some sort of way we could help you. Theresa began to cry. There is no other way, Daddy. This is the only way. No, I insisted. You still have so much to live for. Let me take you away from there. You can come here. Maybe Ray won't come after you. Maybe Ray won't come to you anymore if you're not there. I found myself playing along with her, even though I wasn't sure I even fully believed her. Daddy, there's something else, she said, taking a long and exhausted breath. I'm pregnant. You're... I started, then stopped. A hard lump rose in my throat. I couldn't breathe. My mind pieced it together. Theresa was pregnant, and Ray had been dead for more than a year. It's Ray, she said, answering the question I hadn't asked. But it's... She didn't finish the statement. I don't know what it is. I just know I can't, Daddy. I just can't. She wept. She said her final goodbyes to me, ignoring my pleading. And then, the phone call was over. I already told you how the police had found her. The autopsy revealed that she had died consuming a large number of sleeping pills left healthfully behind by her best friend Shirley. The autopsy also revealed that she had been several months pregnant. I insisted that this detail never be revealed to her mother. Estranged and distant though we are, there are some horrors a mother should be spared when it comes to her own child. So this, as I said, is Theresa's story and the story of her husband Ray. And you may not believe me, but it's an absolutely true story. As fantastical as this may sound, I believe Theresa now. Although two weeks ago, when she told me her story for the first time, of course I had doubted her. I don't doubt her anymore, not a single detail, because every day, she calls to tell me all over again. So, Joffrey here, and uh, definitely a very intriguing story, to say the least. Sort of uh, sad in a way, and, and horrorous. First thing that comes to mind is like, could they not save the the kid or Theresa's kid? Because that'd be fucking pretty interesting. But you know, very eerie and creepy. Sort of has this um feeling of I would say Happy Death Day. If you ever watched that movie where days just reoccur over and over and over and over again until they try to break the cycle somehow. And aside from this, I just wanted to go back to the beginning of this podcast when I talked about the school shooting. Um. I did a little bit more reading about it, and it seems as though this situation has gotten a lot worse. There's been a lot more deaths to this. It seems like this school shooter was an 18-year-old male who had bought, who just turned 18, and then he bought two assault rifles, 
and then went into the school with body armor, shot an officer, and then shot all, all those kids. And before he even went to the school, he shot his grandma in the forehead, who I believe she's alive. And um, a detail that I don't think I remember saying in the beginning, but uh, the school shooter was actually shot and killed on site. And it feels kind of bittersweet that he, you know, was shot and killed because to take the life of, of someone is always a bad thing. Thing, I guess but you really have to be a, a just demented piece of shit to just attack a little kid like that like these kids were in elementary school I, I can barely remember my days in elementary school like all, all I could remember is like some some traumatizing times and in, in throughout my youth but that's pretty much it like these these kids didn't even get to enjoy a bit of life and it just feels unjust overall and I, I don't know I just wish that that the guy who shot at all the kids could suffer and slowly and die a slow and painful death in the worst way possible like we gotta I don't care about your fucking mental illnesses I don't want anything to come out saying oh oh he was a tormented mind he he was showing signs of mental illnesses uh, he came from a household that was beating him. This, that, and the other. Like I don't, like I don't give a fuck about any any of that aspect. I don't give a fuck how much you try to blame the psychological aspect of his mind to the school shooting. Fact of the matter is, this guy's a fucking piece of shit who killed a whole bunch of little kids, and he deserves to die a slow and painful death. And honestly, he see it seems like he got the easy way out by just getting shot at and killed then and there. And I believe this is the second biggest school shooting in America, if I'm not mistaken, but I don't really see um, situations like this getting any better in the near future because it seems like just just history seems to be repeating itself and they don't seem to be able to get it straight as to what the problem is and how they could actually go about resolving issues like this. It seems like no amount of security, no amount of uh, protocols, no amount of uh, drills that they do can prepare you for a school shooting like this. Like, there will always be vulnerability in systems, and there will always be a way to get through to schools like this. And the fact of the matter is, if if somebody plans to perform a mass shooting like this, um, it, it almost it's almost like, and I'm almost sorry to say this, but it feels like it's un- inevitable at this point. Like, shooters will be shooters, and they'll. It seems like they'll always get their way into these schools and the only way to stop something like this would honestly be to do very very thorough checks but then you'll have those people that are like oh why why are you um why are you stereotyping people why are you checking everybody this that and the other and they always make it a whole race thing where oh you're you're checking this person, but you're not checking that person. And I, you can't you can't win in this world sometimes, and and it's reasons like small reasons like that why shit like this happens, where schools and the whole board and their system is sort of scared of applying rules that are too harsh because they feel like oh it's gonna go against some discriminatory um, aspect, and then they might lose some funding or 
they might lose this, that, and the other. So they just keep it the same as it's been for the past 50 years when they know damn well that all this violence has, you know, heavily increased. So they have to do something to match that to make sure that these kids are safe. But that's just my take on it. And I honestly don't think anything is going to change. Hopefully it does. And hopefully they prove me wrong. But to end this episode, I guess I wanted to sort of leave you with some type of positivity uh, for anybody that needed it. I just wanted to say that um, I guess it doesn't really matter what your dream is or what your goal is. You just got to make sure that it's your prime priority to follow what you believe is good for you. Do not live your life trying to impress someone else and do not live your life trying to be someone that you're not. And don't live your life making yourself miserable just to amount to someone else's idealism. You don't want your life to be the structure of someone else's dream. You don't want to be following someone that is taking you down some type of dark road. And I truly do believe in the human race, period, and truly believe that anyone can be what they want to be. We we need people to ideally take care of the world. We need good mothers. We need good fathers. We need people with sources of knowledge. Let's make it... Let's make it not cool to be stupid. Let's make it cool to be a good person. I'm tired of it being cool to be a fucking murderer or shooter, school shooter, or irrelevant being at that point. The sooner we can understand that we need each other, the better off we will be. And I just wanted to say that I guess I appreciate and love and respect all of you. And I, I mean, I believe in all of you and do not let your depression make you do not let your do not let your body define your soul let your soul define your body your mind you mean your mind is truly limitless and you are you are worth more than you can believe all you have to do is dream and all you have to do is want to fulfill that dream and have the strength to fulfill that dream and i mean one thing that i learned for sure is that Pain is a sign of progress, and when you feel pain, there is definitely progress. And that's episode two of the No Regrets podcast.